before we dive into the gospel of Mark. Father God, we come before you. And Lord, we ask now that you would open our eyes, Father. Lord, let us feel this parable this morning. Lord, I pray that through the words of Christ given to us in the gospel of Mark and in our holy scriptures this morning, that we would, we would feel some things this morning. Lord, I pray that you would uh, show us the condition of our own hearts, Lord, that you would show us the heart of, of yourself and of your Son and of your Christ. Lord, I pray, Lord, that through it all, Lord, we would realize that our lives need to be built upon Jesus. Lord, we need your help to do this. Lord, without you, our minds will remain in darkness. We will not see the light. And so we ask that you would open blinded eyes this morning. May we hear these words as if for the first time. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Amen. Mark chapter 12 is where we'll be this morning. It was already read for us. Uh, we're going to read it again, and then we'll kind of dive into what it's saying. So Mark chapter 12. You have your scriptures, and I hope that you do. I invite you to open to the gospel of Mark chapter 12. We'll begin reading in, in verse number 1. And he began to speak to them in parables. A man planted a vineyard and put a fence around it and dug a pit for the wine press and built a tower and leased it to tenants and went into another country. When the season came, he sent a servant to the tenants to get from them some of the fruit of the vineyard. And they took him and beat him and sent him away empty-handed. Again, he sent them another servant, and they struck him on the head and treated him shamefully. They sent another, and him they killed. And so with many others, some they beat and some they killed. He had still one other, a beloved son. Finally, he sent him to them, saying, They will respect my son. But those tenants said to one another, This is the heir. Come, let us kill him, and the inheritance will be ours. And they took him and killed him and threw him out of the vineyard. What will the owner of the vineyard do? He will come and destroy the tenants and give the vineyard to others. Have you not read this scripture? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. And they were seeking to arrest him, but feared the people, for they perceived that he had told the parable against them. So they left him and went away. This is the word of our God. Life is about a lot of things, but I think ultimately life is primarily about relationships. Think about it. Life is about relationships. You see, it's from relationships that we often find the most joy in our lives. We find the most happiness. We, we enjoy good food more when enjoyed with others. As humans, we love to be known and be loved by other people. This is one of the most basic truths of, of human nature. Right? And this makes sense if we think about it. Because when we begin to understand something about God, we understand that God himself has always been in relationship. Think about it for a moment. The reason that you and I exist, the reason that God created everything, including yourself, is not because he had this inert need of relationship. Right? If you've been taught that the reason God created you specifically is because God had some need, some deficiency within himself, listen, I love you, you're wrong. 
That's simply not the case. You see, before God created the cosmos, before in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth, before then God was in a relationship. You see, God the Father loved God the Son. And the Son loved the Father, and the Spirit loved them both. And they both loved the Spirit. You see, God did not have some felt need inside of him of needing to be loved. You see, the Trinity has eternally existed in complete and utter uh, relationship. Uh, happiness and joy flowed from the Father through the Spirit to the Son and vice versa. There was no need of relationship. They had it before the creation of the world. Think about it for a moment. If, 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 if it was true that God had a need to be loved by you. Think about the kind of God that you've created. You have, in a sense, done what my son does, which is when he creates Legos. And those are his creatures. Now, imagine if my son created these Legos and out of a need for needing to be loved by the Legos. It would be ludicrous. It would be unimaginable. In the same way, when we think that God created mankind simply because he needed to be loved by a creation, we've made a God of our own image. We've made a God who simply made Lego figurines so that he can feel love. But on the other hand, imagine if this was the way God needed life to be. Imagine if God needed you to love him. Just think for a moment. If, if God created you and I in such a way because he needed to be loved, imagine the kind of pressure you've put on yourself. Can you stand up under that kind of weight that the God who created everything that is needs little old you to love him? But friends, this is not the way God created the world. God was in relationship with himself before the beginning of time, and so it's no small surprise that relationships for us make up a large part of what it actually means to be a human. Think of your own relationship. Think of the greatest relationship you have with another person. For most of us, that's the relationship with your spouse, uh, the relationship within holy matrimony. And from there, the circle of relationships grow larger. They expand outward, perhaps, to children or grandchildren or immediate family members. Even further still, relationships extend to good friends and friends who you do life with, friends you talk with regularly, friends you seek advice from and give advice to. Even further still, uh, the relationship borders grow outside of good friends to co-workers. This next level of relationships that we have with people. In all of these relationships, right, we find an immense amount of joy, we find an immense amount of comfort and happiness, Right, we consider our lives richer because of them. But also, we find that because of the human nature that exists in all of us, these relationships are often a great source of stress and sorrow. You need to be married no longer than about 20 minutes to find this out. Great stress and great sorrow, right? How many of us have found our marriages at times frustrating? Or our children frustrating, vexing? Or the co-workers that you work with. How many of you have found in your own experience that some of the most annoying things you've heard have come from those people? I say all of this because the point of the text of Mark chapter 12 
is ultimately and fundamentally about a relationship. It's about the most important relationship in life. And you see the point of the text this morning is about a relationship between God and man. Specifically about a relationship between God and his people. And the point of our sermon this morning, and the hope of, of what I uh, hoped and aimed to accomplish is that each of us will begin to examine our own relationship with God and with Christ. If we understand our relationship with God and understand our relationship with Christ better, then, friends, we will understand more about how we are to live. We will understand what it means uh, when we go through different seasons of life to know how our relationship with Christ should be built. And so I have three points this morning from this text. Uh, number one, our rejection of God. Uh, our, our continual uh, resistance to the will of God. And then number two, God's pursuit of us in spite of us. And number three, Christ as the foundation of our relationship. Let's look at our rejection of God. Notice with me in verse one. And he, Jesus, began to speak to them in parables. Now, who is Jesus speaking to here? It's the same people as he's speaking to at the end of chapter 11. He is speaking to the scribes and the Pharisees and the religious elite. Now, it's interesting, is it not, that it's not the low people in life who often reject Christ. It's not those who are on the, out, on the outside looking in, those who are on the fringes of society, those who are uneducated that reject Christ the most, but rather it's those who are educated. It's the elite it is those who have higher standing that often reject Christ. This is what's happening here, right? These religious elite, these scribes, these Pharisees uh, were rejecting Christ, right? Is it, it, we should notice that in the Gospels, the people who resonate the most with Jesus are those who recognize their needs, honestly. And the parable here is about the relationship of God and his people and it's directed to the Pharisees. Notice that from verse 1. He's speaking to them in parables, the Pharisees. Verse 1 goes on and says, A man planted a vineyard and put a fence around it and dug a pit for the wine press and built a tower and leased it to tenants and went to another country. Now, in the days of Jesus, what, 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 what's happening here is what, what's termed as absentee landowners. Absentee landowners. These were people who would come in, buy a land, build a wine uh, 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 grape yard, and then, then they would lease it out to middlemen to manage it. They would lease it to these people in between to manage the production of the crops and the farms. So when Jesus is speaking this parable, no doubt the Pharisees would have known exactly what he's talking about here. This wasn't a foreign concept. Those around would have understood that Jesus is talking about an absentee landowner. This is Jesus relating to the people. They would have understood this idea from the very beginning of Jesus beginning to tell this parable. He's relating to them. He's contextualizing a story for them. But there's also another aspect in which the scribes and Pharisees no doubt had in the back of their mind this idea of a vineyard representing God's people. Right? So this comes from Isaiah. I'll, just, I'll read you a couple verses here. Isaiah chapter 5 verse 1 says this. Let me sing for my beloved my love song concerning his vineyard. My beloved had a vineyard on a fertile hill. He dug it and cleared it of stones and planted it with choice vines. He built a watchtower in the midst of it and hewed out of a wine vat in it. And he looked for it to yield grapes, but it yielded wild grapes. Essentially, what Isaiah is saying in this vineyard illustration is that the vineyard is God's people. That's what he's saying. 
But what we find is that even though God is loving and pursuing his people and continually trying to cultivate his people, his people are continuing to reject this God, continuing to uh, be ungrateful to him. Verses 3 and 4, it says, And now, O inhabitants of Jerusalem, men of Judah, judge me, judge between me and my vineyard. What more was there to do for my vineyard that I have not done it? When I looked for it to yield grapes, why did it yield wild grapes? So you can sense from Isaiah's illustration that God has planted a vineyard of his people, the Israelites, his chosen people, and yet he's, he's expecting something from them that's not coming, right? He was expecting grapes, and, and instead he was getting wild grapes. This is a picture of God's people continually pressing back against him, against the good and loving God whom they are to serve. And so this ultimately leads God to sending judgment, verses 5 and 7, 5 through 7. And now I will tell you what I will do to my vineyard. I will remove its hedge, and it shall be devoured. I will break down its wall, and it shall be trampled down. I will make it a waste that shall be pruned, shall not be pruned or hoed, and briars and thorns shall grow up, and I will also... Uh, command the clouds that they rain, no rain upon it. For the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel. Right, this is Isaiah. He's starting to give the interpretation of what he's saying here. And the men of Judah are his pleasant planting. And he looked for justice and behold, bloodshed. For righteousness, but behold, an outcry. You see, in Isaiah's scripture of chapter 5, what we find is that God has planted a vineyard and he's expecting something, right? This relationship with God and his people, and yet the relationship is strained. It's stress-producing. Now notice what Jesus is doing here. Think back to the night when Christ entered the temple. When he first arrived into Jerusalem, right? He goes into the temple. He looks around, and seeing that it's late, he retires back to uh, back to his house, and there he to spend the night, only to then come back the next day and begin to flip over tables. And now he has come back again. Right? He's already spoken at the end of chapter 11 about his authority and about John the Baptist's authority. We covered that last week, where it comes from. And the message behind all of it is that Israel is not doing what it was supposed to be doing. The temple was not functioning properly. It was not rightly ordered. That's the meaning of the fig tree, right? When Jesus curses the fig tree, it's something has went wrong here. The temple was meant to be a beacon of hope and light to the world. It was supposed to be a place where people of all the nations could gather and worship Yahweh. And so the relationship is strained, and he's trying to make a point that the people of God is rebellious. And so he gives this parable, the parable of the vineyard, to show this point. Right, here's what he's essentially saying. He's saying that the, the man who planted the vineyard, that's God. The vineyard is Israel. It's God's chosen people. The servants are God's prophets, and the tenants are the religious leaders. And so we see the same point in our lives. The Israelite, like the Jewish, they must have been hearing Jesus begin to tell this parable about a, uh, this, and they began to understand. They, they begin to understand that this is the continuation of Jesus picking up Isaiah's uh, illustration, using the vineyard as a relationship between God and His people. The religious leaders are rebelling against God; they are pushing back on Him. And so, notice we see that God sends His servants. Look at verse two. 
When the season came, he sent a servant to the tenants to get from them some of the fruit of the vineyard. And they took him and beat him and sent him away empty-handed. Again, he sent to them another servant. And they struck him on the head and treated him shamefully. And he sent another, and him they killed. And so with many others, some they beat and some they killed. And so God is sending servants, right? And in the Old Testament, there have been prophets. He's sending prophets to the people of God to turn their hearts back to God. And so God sends a man to get some fruit of the vineyard. And yet, notice what happens. They take the first man and they beat him. They send him away empty-handed. He goes back to, back to the man, back to the guy who owns the vineyard, uh, and, and there he's empty-handed. And so the man sends another one. Now notice what they did to the second man. They, they struck him on the head and treated him shamefully. Notice how Mark is, like, this is worse than the first man. Right? The first man they simply describe as he's being beat and sent away empty-handed. This man, they've struck him on the head. More specificity for Mark and the second man. They treated him shamefully. And finally, notice the third man. Verse 5. It simply says, him they killed. Now the point in all of this, and the point that I think Jesus is making, the point that Mark is telling us, is that there's this escalation In verse 3, they beat him. In verse 4, they struck him on the head, treated him shamefully. In verse 5, they've killed a man. Now, this is about the religious leaders. Remember, the tenants in the illustration are the religious elite. But if we're being honest, these Pharisees have a bit of our own heart, don't they? Can't we see ourselves in them? You see, Mark is trying to make the point to the readers that in each of us, there lies this inclination of rebellion, right? Think of your own life and your own relationship with God. We often think when we're going through trying seasons that, well, if I was God, I would not have done it this way, right? There's this idea that, and we would never verbalize this because we're Christians and we've, we've been in church for a while, but we would never say out loud that uh, I know better than God, but oftentimes we live that way. You see, we want our own autonomy. We want to think that we know how to live life the best. You see, when we understand the story, we understand it's not just about the religious leaders. It's not just about the Pharisees, but it's also about you and I. Alexander Selinsky said in the Gulag Archipelago, he says this, uh, in talking about understanding, because uh, this is the guy who wrote, uh, you know, fantastic autobiography about his trials within the, the, the Russian uh, gulag, basically the Russian holocaust, if you will. And he's trying to understand he's, what makes the, the, the evil men, the guys who are doing this so evil, and, and us the good guys. Here's what he says. If only it were all so simple. If only there were evil people somewhere insidiously committing evil deeds and it were necessary only to separate them from the rest of us and destroy them. That's what he said. The dividing line between good and evil cuts through the heart of every human being. And who is willing to destroy a piece of his own heart? See, Alexander Selensky realized that the heart of the Pharisee is also his heart. It also lived in him. Now think about this. Isn't this true of each of us? Don't we naturally want to live life our own way? Don't we oftentimes try to push back against God's will for our lives? And it doesn't matter if you're a new Christian or if you've been walking with the Lord for 50 years. It doesn't matter how much you mature as a Christian. 
It doesn't matter how long you've walked with the Lord or how many times you've read the scriptures from start to back. Listen, the Pharisee's heart is still always going to be a remnant in your own heart. Like, if you take any time to reflect on this, you'll realize it's true. But there's this part of you that thinks you know better than God. You see, that's the, the human nature within all of us. That's what it means to be human, is that we are openly hostile to God. We're not born morally neutral. We are born God-haters and rebelling against the one who created us. And yet, it is to these people, and it is to us, us who are continually rejecting God, us who are continually saying we know better than Him, it is to these people and to us that God lovingly pursues. Look at verse 5. It says in, at the end of verse 5, it says, And so with many others, some they beat and some they killed. Now Mark and Jesus are just telling us that those, he's given the example of three, and yet it doesn't say exactly how many, but it says many more. He kept sending people to the vineyard. And so we have to ask the question here. Why were so many servants sent to the tenants? Is God slow? Does God not understand what's happening? No, friends, listen. God continually sends the servants to the tenants and to the vineyard because He is showing that His love is everlasting. He is showing and continuing to send the servants to the tenants His heart for His people. Remember, the vineyard is a picture of God's people. You see, God never gives up. God's love is from everlasting to everlasting. God's love is patient and active. And this is so different than the way you and I operate, isn't it? Like, for example, in, in college, I was, uh, some of you guys know this, some of you might not, I was, the first three years, I was, I was trained to be a high school math teacher. Um, I walk into my uh, senior year, of, and I don't know why it took me so long to realize this, but I walk into my senior year of college, and you're like, you know what? I just don't have the patience to deal with immature 10, 11, 12-year-olds, like, or 12th graders. Like, have you guys ever worked with these kids? Like, think about it. Like, I try to explain something to them, and I'm the kind of person who hates to repeat myself. It was at this moment I realized this in college, uh, and then later, only once I had kids, that I for sure realize I actually really cannot stand. Like, you want to you get under my skin? We talked about this last week, the, the buttons issue. Like, you want to you drive me up a wall, make me repeat myself. I cannot stand it. And I realized this in senior year, something deep in the heart, like, I lack the patience of the Lord. Like, think, like I would try to teach a kid. I, I don't know if it was, like, the, the 11th grade or the 11th year, uh, the the. the Soft, not sophomore, but the junior year of college and, and in the student teaching when I actually had to sit with actual students and actually try to teach them some kind of linear algebra or what it was, but it's just like, I cannot do this. I realized that really quickly, and yet our Lord is not like that. Our Lord is long-suffering. Our Lord is continually pursuing us. Now, most of us probably think that our entry into the Christian faith is a one-moment-in-time thing, don't we? So perhaps you went forward to an altar to pray after a sermon and accepted Christ as your Savior, or perhaps it was uh, a youth uh, event where that night you accepted Christ as your Savior, or perhaps it was you in a coffee shop with a friend who was trying to evangelize you that you realized that Christ is who He says He is, and there you pray for forgiveness. 
But we need to realize that it was long before we bowed our heads in prayer that the Lord was pursuing us. Some of you, I, I know, realize this. Some of you, God had to pursue for decades. Perhaps He used the faithful presence and prayers of your wife or husband or your, your mother or your father to eventually open your eyes to the truth of the gospel. You see, it wasn't an instantaneous moment of conversion and conviction. It was God continually pursuing you, continually, continually reaching out to you, continually calling you to Himself. This is amazing, isn't it? Like this should cause us to pause and consider the depths of God's love for us. Because listen, only you know you like you know you. You know how wicked you are. You know how stubborn you are. You know how uh, easy you fly off the handles. And yet, it's this same God who's lovingly pursuing you. Year after year, decade after decade. This should cause us to consider the depths of love God has for us. This should cause our hearts to swell should cause tears to rush to our eyes. Oh, the deep, deep love of Jesus, vast, unmeasured, boundless, free, rolling as a mighty ocean in its fullness over me. Underneath me, all around me, is the current of His love leading onward, leading homeward to Thy glorious rest above. Oh, the deep, deep love of Jesus, tis a heaven of heavens to me, and it lifts me up to glory, for it lifts me up to Thee. Oh, the deep, deep love of Jesus. Spread His praise from shore to shore. Now He loveth, ever loveth, changeth never, nevermore. So we should think, like, because in this parable that, God, that Jesus is telling to the Pharisees, to the religious elite, He's continually sending, right? The man who owns the vineyard is continually sending servants to the people because He loves them. This should encourage us. This should cause us uh, uh, joy and to understand the, the magnitude with which God loves us. And yet it should also embolden us and encourage us to persist in our own evangelism and prayers for the lost. We should not be quick to give up in telling those whom we care most about that the one who cares more about them is still pursuing them still pursuing them. So then we need to go on and ask the, the logical next question. Because look at verse 6. He had still one other, a beloved son. Finally, he sent him to them. We have to ask the next question, is, which is what farmer would send his own son to these tenants? Right, so most of us, if we knew that we, uh, we, that we, we had a job site and we had employees being killed on the job site, we wouldn't say, you know what? Let me send my son, my only son, whom I love it, to these guys and set these guys straight, would we? We, we would say, no, 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 don't go there. It's, it's not safe there. And yet, he does. He had still one other, a beloved son. Now, this is interesting because verse 6 shows us that this son to this farmer is unique. He had one other, a beloved son. 
You see, the servants who he had sent previously, this farmer, he, uh, these were hired men. These were, these were people uh, who, who was not necessarily beloved by the farmer. But this one is different. He calls him his beloved son. Now, this is interesting because in, in the Gospel of Mark, there's only two other times beloved son is mentioned. And the first is at the baptism of Jesus in Mark chapter 1, and the next is at the transfiguration of Jesus. Notice what Jesus is doing here. Jesus is linking himself to this son being sent to the tenants. He's calling himself the beloved son, right? This beloved son that is being sent. Jesus is saying, I'm him. That's me. I'm here. The Pharisees realize this. They understand the connection Jesus is making here. And here's the point. God is still pursuing these men, these women in his son, and God is still pursuing you and I in the same beloved son. He's still pursuing you. This an unbeliever who says, I don't even believe any of this, just know God's still pursuing you. You Christian who's been walking with the Lord, struggling with doubt, listen, God sees you, he's still pursuing you. Now Jesus is doing something else when he's telling this parable here. Anytime Jesus speaks in a parable in the scriptures, he's, he's, he's causing a division. He's dividing the people into two groups. One group, those who believe what he's saying and love it, and those who disagree and hate it and can't stand it. Right, even today, right, just reading the scripture, this scripture alone, Mark 12, 1 through 12, will cause a division amongst you. There will be those of you who know what God is saying here, and you will rejoice. There will be those of you who are darkened in your understanding and cannot stand it. We, we know this is the purpose in Jesus' words. Look at verse 7. Those tenants said to one another, This is the heir. Come, let us kill him, and the inheritance will be ours. And they took him and killed him and threw him out of the vineyard. And we see this dividing effect, right? Because he he asked uh, this question in verse 9. What will the owner of the vineyard do? He will come and destroy the tenants and give the vineyard to others. You see, the point of application for us this morning is that God is still pursuing you. The only question is, how will you respond? Is the word of God having a softening effect on your heart or a hardening effect on your heart? Right, we know what the the effect was for these Pharisees. We see it in verse 12. They were seeking to arrest him, but feared him, but feared the people. And here's why. For they perceived that he told the parable against them. Like, they, like they know Jesus is talking. Like, they know Jesus is talking about them. And what did they do? They walked away. Listen, God is pursuing you even today in his son. The question is, what will you do? Lastly, we see that Jesus ends this parable with a quote from Psalm 118. He says, Have you not read this scripture? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. Notice what Jesus does. He switches the metaphor, switches the illustration from a vineyard to a building. He switches it 
from a vineyard to a building. He's, he's pulling on Psalm 118, saying, like, this is obviously going to happen. The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. Now understand the importance of the cornerstone. You see, the cornerstone was the, 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 the main foundation. It was the, the, the stone on which all the walls would lean and gain their strength from. The irrigation in these days would lead out of the foundation from the cornerstone, right? Everything required and relied on it being built correctly on the cornerstone. So what is Jesus saying here? He's saying that he is the cornerstone. The builders... They're the scribes and the Pharisees and the religious elite. They've walked away. They've rejected this cornerstone. The point is that all of our lives are to be built on Christ. You see, Christ is laying himself as the foundation for our relationship with God. Our lives should not be built on how much money we have in the bank account. Our lives should not be built on the careers that we have built for ourselves. Our lives should not even be built upon our family and our loved ones. When you build your life on anything besides Christ, then you should not be surprised when the, the, everything in your life starts to give way, when it starts to crumble out from underneath you. When you're in life and you decide like nothing here makes sense, that's a good application that perhaps you've built on the wrong cornerstone. Your life and my life is to be built on Christ. Our families are supposed to be built on Christ. Listen, our very jobs and the money that we make should all be built on Christ. Not only that, but this church should be built on Christ. Because it's only when we build our relationships on Christ, when only when we build our lives solely on this cornerstone, this foundation, that does everything else in life actually make sense. So I have two applications, and I'll close. The first is, notice the, the, the metaphor Jesus is using here that Isaiah used in chapter 5, the metaphor of a vineyard. Right? This, this means that there's supposed to be growth. There's supposed to be organic maturation. This means that God is expecting fruit from his church. The question for you this morning is, how in your individual life or in this church are you bearing fruit? How are you growing in grace? How are your prayers growing and producing fruit? How is the forgiveness that you're freely giving away producing fruit? How is your loving faithfulness and your kindness bearing fruit? Listen, the, the metaphor is a vineyard. He's expecting growth. He's expecting fruit to be produced. The same is true for us. The second point of application, the point of the tenants, the, the, they're the leaders, they're the religious elite. They are the ones who are now rejecting Christ. They're they're shutting him out. They're, they will ultimately nail him to the cross. And yet we must ultimately realize that this story is not just about the Pharisees. It's a story about you and I. It's a relationship about you and I and our relationship with God. You see, we must realize what the tenants failed to realize. And that is that God is the owner of the vineyard. Like he owns it. 
He gets to say what happens when it happens. We must all realize that God is the owner of the vineyard, and therefore God has all rights to tell us how to live our lives. He has all the right in the world to tell us uh, what we should do with our money. He should tell us how we should raise our children. Why? Because he's the owner of the vineyard. He's the one who gets to set these expectations for us. Listen, what that means for you and I is that we don't get to. We don't get to decide how we spend all of our money. We don't get to decide who ultimately like, we will be best friends with and not be best friends with. Now, we think we do. And we try to push back against the God's authority by saying, well, no, I'm going to go over here and do what I want to do. And yet, in that moment, we become like the tenants. And we fail to realize this is God's world. Therefore, we should live as he would have us live. We should love and forgive as he would have us love and forgive. So this morning I ask that you would uh, uh, not be like the tenants. The tenants who walked away, the tenants who rejected Christ and wanted no more. Don't be like the Pharisees uh, who, who would not bow the knee to Jesus. You would understand the depths of your own depravity. You would understand that the, the, the deep-seated rebellion of your heart is the way that you were born, and yet it's not the way you have to stay. Because God's loving pursuit of you is so that you will love Him. And that you would build your life on His Son. Father God, we thank You this morning for Your loving kindness. Lord, we realize that if we were to take all the evil thoughts we've had this past week, just one week, Father, and show those or tell those to everyone we know, we, we would try to hide as far away as we could. Lord, we realize ourselves the brokenness of our own lives. And yet, Father, this morning we're presented with the thought and the idea that in spite of that, you love us. We're told from John 3, 16, that you so loved us. So much that you would send your one and only beloved son for us. Father, I pray we would realize this. Lord, I pray that we would understand that having a relationship with you is the most important thing we can do. And that from that relationship we would be able to build out all the aspects of life. Lord, understanding Christ as Lord and then working out how we're to interact with each other, how we're to interact with the government, how we're to interact with everything else in our lives is an outflowing from this relationship. Father, I pray you would help us understand this. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.